This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. Hope everybody had a good week. This is episode 33 of Mormon Awakenings. 33 happened to be my number in high school on the high school basketball team, number 33. One of the cooler numbers on the team. And for some reason, I got it, even though I was basically the 12th man on the squad, never got off the bench. Somehow I got the number, though, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wore number 33. Larry Bird wore number 33. Magic Johnson was 33 at Michigan State, but then when he went to the Lakers, he had to change it to 32 because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wore 33, so he couldn't take Kareem's number. Shaquille O'Neal wore number 33 when he played for the Magic. But then when he went to the Lakers, again, couldn't get Kareem's number, so he had to wear number 34. These are interesting facts I know about numbers. I'm sure you're all very intrigued. But facts they are. The fact is, when Magic Johnson played for the Lakers, he wore number 32. He couldn't wear number 33 because Kareem had number 33. Same with Shaquille. These may be trivial facts, but they are nonetheless facts. You can look it up on the Internet. It's demonstrably true. Shaquille O'Neal, while a member of the Orlando Magic, wore number 33. But when he went and played for the Lakers, he wore number 34. Period. There are other facts. The circumference of the Earth at the, at the equator is 24,900 miles. That's a fact. Another fact is that the circumference of the Earth measured from pole to pole, from the North Pole to the South Pole, is 24,812 miles. So that's weird. 88 miles less. I learned these facts because when I was in Ecuador over Christmas, the tallest mountain in Ecuador is actually the farthest from the core of the Earth because the Earth at the equator is slightly wider than it is measured pole to pole. The Earth is sort of bulgy that way. So even though the mountains in Ecuador are not as measured from sea level as high as Mount Everest... They are, if you measure from the core of the earth to the peak of the mountain, they are the tallest mountains in the world, even taller than Mount Everest. So that's interesting. Or not, depending on your point of view. Nonetheless, these are facts. Facts are facts are facts are facts. They cannot be changed. They are what they are. Or can they? There's an interesting guy named John Searle who wrote a book called The Construction of Social Reality. Doesn't sound like right, light reading, I know, and it's not. It's not light reading at all. In the book, though, John Searle talks about two types of facts. He talks about brute facts, like the facts I just shared with you. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wore number 33 while playing for the Los Angeles Lakers. The Earth's circumference at the equator is 24,900 miles. Measured pole to pole, it's 24,812 miles. Those are brute Facts. Can't do anything about them. They are what they are, what they are, what they are. They may be expressed in language. They may be expressed through the tools of culture, math, language, maps even. But they're incontrovertible. They are what they are, what they are, what they are. He distinguishes these brute facts from institutional facts. Institutional facts, in contrast, are quite dependent 
upon social agreements about how the rules of life work. And John Searle goes on to make the point that most of our lives have to do with these type of institutional facts. One example of an institutional fact is that I owe the bank money for my house. I borrowed money from the bank. I bought a house with it. So the bank gets what is called a mortgage. The bank has a mortgage against my house. So when I sell my house, the bank gets their money first. Everything that I borrowed from them first, then I get whatever's left over. And if there's nothing left over, I get nothing. And if I get less for my house than what I owe the bank, then I still owe the bank. That's just the way it works. If I don't pay my mortgage, the bank can then come and say, hey, remember this mortgage? I think we'll take your house now. That's the way it works. And I can't say, gee, guys, this seems patently unfair. How come you get my house? And they'll say, this is the way mortgages work. We've all agreed to that. And the U.S. legal system backs up the bank and shakes its finger at me and says, look, dummy, you knew what you were getting involved with. We all know. We all agreed to this. We all know how much the loan is for. There's a contract. Anyone who borrows money knows the rules. Anyone who lends money knows the rules. We all know the rules. So it becomes an institutional fact that I owe the bank money. And if I don't pay the bank bank the money that I owe them, they'll take my house. Those are just those are the facts of life. Institutional facts of life. There are other institutional facts like Nicole is your wife or that red pile of metal with wheels is my car. Ownership, family relationships, duties, violations, crimes. These are all based upon institutional facts that we've all agreed upon because we've all agreed upon the rules, the rules of life. We think it's funny in the movies when Thor or some guy from the 1300s gets in a time machine and enters our world and they don't know the rules. They don't know all these things that we've agreed upon that go without saying and they say funny things. They, the travelers, you know, Thor traveling from, where does, where's Thor's from? I think it's Asgard. Is, is Thor from Asgard? I think that's right. I know o- Odin is his dad, right? So it's not Odinville. That's what I was initially thinking. I think it's Asgard. Or, you know, the caveman who shows up in modern life. And, oh, he doesn't know any of the rules of modern life. And he doesn't understand any of these institutional facts. He doesn't understand what it means to owe money on your house or to own a car or to have a wife or a husband to get promoted, to be the elder scorn president, to be the bishop, the really society president, a 70. He doesn't know what any of that stuff means. These institutional facts are lost on said time traveler or said space and time traveler Thor. But these institutional facts are constructive facts, and they're dependent upon a whole group of other stuff that we don't really talk about explicitly ever. They're not incontrovertible, basic unchangeable facts because if the system suddenly is changed and chucked and a new system is put in place, all the institutional facts get sort of jumbled up. You know, if we were invaded by Martians who came and took us over, outlawed marriage, banned it, then my wife would no longer be my wife. She'd just be some lady I'm living with. Now, why am I talking about any of this stuff? Brute facts versus institutional facts versus Martians coming down and changing the facts. The reason I'm mentioning any of this is because there's a great story in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, about Ruth. Ruth, you may recall, was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi had two sons. 
and Ruth married one of them. Now, what's interesting about Ruth marrying Naomi's sons is that Naomi and her sons were not Moabites, and Ruth was a Moabite, and Naomi and her two sons were living in Moab. They had emigrated from Israel to Moab. Now, we don't know a lot about Moab, but we know that the people of Moab are not the Israelites. They're different. They have a different culture, different set of rules, different institutions, different set of expectations. Well, Ruth is married to Naomi's son for 10 years or so, and then he dies along with his brother. The father has since died a long time before this. And Naomi, whose sons are dead, her husband's dead, says to her two daughter-in-laws, one of whom is Ruth. The other one, by the way, is named Oprah. So that's interesting. Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, look, you've been really nice to me, thanks. We've been visitors here in your land. We're foreigners You've been really nice to me, but you know, my sons are dead now and I'm not going to have any more sons. Presumably, Ruth and Oprah would have married her new sons to take the place of her old sons per custom, should she be able to have any more sons. But that looked like that wasn't going to happen. So Naomi said, look, just let me go back to my homeland. I hear there's food there and you guys can go and live your life. Thanks. And both the daughter-in-laws, interestingly enough, say, no, no, let us stay with you. And Naomi says, no, 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 you guys go live your life. And then Oprah says, okay, goodbye. But Naomi doesn't. Naomi says, you know, why don't I come with you to your homeland? And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In other words, Ruth basically says to Naomi, Let's leave all the institutional facts, cultural understandings, the general agreements that I understand and have grown up knowing, a set of rules that's been inculcated in me since my birth. I'm going to leave all that behind, and I'm going to go with you, Naomi, to your land, a land I've never been to, by the way, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God, and that's a big deal. In light of what we just talked about, leaving the land of her origin where she was fluent in the culture, fluent in all the expectations, all the premises of any institutional facts, and going to this new land. Well, that was quite a, quite a sacrifice. And one could speculate that Ruth didn't even understand, didn't even grasp how profound of a sacrifice that really would end up being. Nonetheless, she did it. She followed Naomi back to her people, back to Israel specifically back to Bethlehem. Not coincidental, I don't think, by the way, that Naomi was from Bethlehem. So that's what they do. Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem. And they go to the house of Naomi's dead husband. He's got some distant relative named Boaz who's got some fields. They're growing corn. In order to feed themselves, Ruth goes out at night and gleans whatever's left over after the reapers have hacked down the stalks of corn. Whatever discarded ears or shards or grains or whatever left over, Naomi went and gathered that up. And Boaz, the owner of the field, he saw her do this and he said, hey, who's this woman gleaning after hours in my fields? And they said, well, it's Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabitish damsel. He looks at her and he says, well, why don't we let her come and follow the reapers during the day? She can just follow right behind them. And I'm going to tell all the reapers, look, don't molest this woman. Just leave her alone. 
even though she's a foreigner, she's probably homeless, just leave her alone, don't treat her badly. And the implication is clear. Boaz isn't just being kind, he's kind of taking a liking to Ruth. He also says she can hang out with his handmaidens. We're not exactly sure what the handmaidens do or what sort of services they provided to Boaz, but Ruth was welcome to hang out with his handmaidens as well. So the next, the next day she does that. She follows the reapers right behind him, and she just she ends up gathering up so much it equals an ephah of barley, however much that is, who knows, a lot. She goes home to Naomi, and she says, hey, look, look at all this grain I got, and I got it all from this guy Boaz who's been really nice to me. Now, you got to remember, Ruth doesn't really get what's going on. Ruth is from Moab. The customs, the institutional protocols, and therefore all the institutional facts, the institutional inferences, those are all totally lost on Ruth. She's just operating in the realm of brute fact. She's just trying to survive, find food, eat. She doesn't know any of the social implications of anything she's doing at all. At least that's the way I read it. She is in the moment trying to survive, trying to do her best. And in many ways, she's unencumbered by the institutional requirements, the restrictions. Whatever decorum would require of her, she was oblivious to it. And Boaz also knew that she was oblivious to it. And he could just see the brute facts about Ruth. And the brute facts were that she was just trying to survive, just trying to keep her mother-in-law alive, that she had left her homeland, sacrificed basically her entire future to take care of her older, widowed mother-in-law. And and it just kind of struck Boaz to the core. All the window dressing of life, all the institutional facts and inferences that one might draw looking at this woman were not relevant because he knew that she was the Moabitish damsel. And there was a certain purity, unadorned, that he could sense about her. Well, Boaz took a liking to her. Naomi, who was a little more savvy about the customs and the practices of the people of Bethlehem, she said to Ruth, well, Ruth, looks like this guy Boaz kind of digs you and your Moabitish damsel-y thing, and let's see if we can maybe close the deal here. So Naomi takes a massive gamble and tells Ruth to go into the threshing barn one night after Boaz has been drinking and place herself at his feet strategically. So she does that. Boaz threshes the corn and the wheat and the grains all day long. He's tired. He eats. He drinks. He falls asleep on the threshing barn floor like he does per habit. Everyone's aware of this habit of his. And then Ruth kind of sneaks in there at night. And she lays down at his feet. And then in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up and he's like, what is this? We're not sure if he's psyched about it or if he feels like he's been ensnared in a compromised position. Maybe he thought he had blacked out. Who knows? But he looks down and he sees Ruth, the Moabitish damsel. And he, what are you doing here? And Ruth says, hey, we're... We're near kinsmen. This is okay. This is copacetic. It's all right that I'm here with you in this somewhat scandalous situation here in the threshing barn floor. Again, we don't know what Boaz thought he might have done or if he had blacked out or, you know, what he thought of all this. Ruth 
doesn't really tip her hand other than to say, we're near kinsmen. Look, this is fine. This is, you know, it's, it's all good. But the ultimate implication was clear from Ruth, which is let's, you and me, be more than near kinsmen. Let's, you know, let's be man and wife. And the near kinsman part is relevant because at the time when a husband died, the nearest kinsman had a right to the dead husband's property. And at the time, these feudal times, the dead man's wife would go with the property to the nearest kinsman should he want to buy the land and the cows and the women. So Ruth was saying, presumably coached by Naomi, hey, I'm a near kinsman. You know, why don't you just buy the property? And then Boaz thinks, yeah, that's a good idea. But then he says, oh, but there's someone who's even a near kinsman than I am to you. So I got to go work it out. Well, Boaz does go work it out. He negotiates a deal with the near kinsman. He buys the land. The near kinsman declines. All the institutional requirements and the institutional facts and the institutional contracts, those are all met. And magically, Boaz ends up with Ruth or alternatively, Ruth ends up with Boaz. And at the time, having a man to provide and protect during these brutal Old Testament times, well, that was something of value. And Ruth and Naomi both benefited from this. Not purely a cynical play because Boaz clearly was attracted to the Moabitish damsel. I love the story of Ruth because it's a story about someone whose heart was pure. It's a story about being ignorant to the complexities of life, to the social protocols, the cultural expectations, contracts, the institutional facts as they may be. And just trying to be good in a brute sense. And I don't mean brute in an angry or violent way like some brute. But I mean brute in the sense of a brute fact. In the sense of an unadorned, unvarnished fact. Ruth was just being what she was in a brute sort of way. Kind, sacrificing, faithful, trusting, never giving failure Demise, starvation, molestation at the hands of the reapers, a second thought. And if she did give it a second thought, those fears certainly didn't overcome her. I love this story. It's so instructive, I think, on how the powers of the universe actually operate, at what level those powers are pulsating through our lives. And it's at the basic, unadorned, is what it is, what it is level of life. Somehow I think the universe can see through all the institutional facts, all the institutional protocols, the cultural expectations, cultural machinations, manipulations, and see deep down into simply what is about each of us. And at that fundamental level, you're either sending off vibrations of faith and trust and hope or you're engulfed by fear and misery and anger. And those things, like the circumference of the earth at the equator, are what they are what they are. And they can be changed, but not without recognizing it first. If you are consumed by anger and misery and fear, all of the power in the universe responds to that in kind. And if you are full of love and hope and trust... All the powers of the universe likewise respond in kind. 
There's something about knowing deep inside your soul that life has a purpose and all is well and all's going to work out. And you're not a victim and your experiences have been constructive. And you can tell viscerally when people are like that deep down in their soul. And you can tell viscerally when they're not, regardless of whatever institutional facts they're trying to convey to you, whatever institutional protocols they're trying to adhere to. I think this is the request from God when God asks for us to be pure in heart. I don't think it has as much to do with sin and not sin, but it has to do with being honest about what's really going down on deep inside you at the brute fact level. Don't try to fake that. I think God is actually fine if you're driven by fear, as long as you recognize it and admit it, because then it can change. Stop faking how you're really feeling deep down. Be honest about it. And if deep down you're not what you want, recognize it and figure out a way to move forward with a pure heart, an honest heart about what is, about the brute facts of your life. We get hung up a lot in our community about keeping commandments, about observing protocols, about adhering. And I'm not trying to say that those things aren't important. They are. They are important. We need order and structure. But the story of Ruth, which in my view is one of the most profound stories in the Old Testament, is about none of those things. If anything, it has some salacious elements in it. There's this Moabitish damsel who's luring the unsuspecting Boaz, tricking him, if you will, on the floor of the threshing barn, laying at his feet, letting him think, oh, maybe something happened after you were drinking. Maybe you blacked out. Ooh, but it's okay. I'm a near kinsman. I mean, we don't talk about the salacious. You know, it's not explicit. It's, you know, it's all implied, and maybe it wasn't that salacious. But there, there is an, an argument to be made that there's this very salacious element to this story. And there's no strength of youth condemnation of the aggressive Ruth kind of luring Boaz into marriage, is there? It's about what was going on at a deeper level inside Ruth, the purity of her heart, the love she had for her mother-in-law. It was about Boaz's compassion, telling his reapers to back off, about him buying the land from the near kinsman so that he could take care of Ruth and Naomi. It's about all these brute facts and none of the institutional facts. It's easy to get lost in the institutional side of our lives, of our church, of our community, and forget about those times when we're outside the institutional umbrellas, acting on what's really inside our heart, purely. It's either pure good or it's pure fear, pure love, pure anger, pure positivity, or pure playing the victim, with none of the accoutrements or the adornments of the institutional world in which we all occupy. I think our creator has set up the universe so that it draws out from us what's really there deep inside us so that we can deal with it one way or the other because everything else is window dressing. Not irrelevant, not totally superfluous, not meaningless, but not foundational, not brute-like. 
And as the world becomes more complicated, as our institutions become more layered and widespread, it's easy to hide behind conventions and protocols, expectations and institutional facts. But if you're driven by fear, ultimately, you and God are going to know. And if you're lying about your fear, then you don't have purity of heart. On the other hand, if you're honest about it, I think your heart is pure. Likewise, if you're driven by love. And the story of Ruth and Naomi is that a little purity of heart and a little love goes a long, long way, even in the face of institutional ignorance. It's easy to get lost in our lives of checklists, to-dos, commandments, appearances, avoiding appearances, and forgetting that deep within each of us is a spirit created by God having a wonderful experience on this earth. And the only thing that's going to move on is that spirit. So the more in touch and aware you can become of what's going on deep down at that level, the more progress I think you can make. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.